Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Rethink, a podcast where we revisit past articles from the University of Malta's Think magazine. Looking at the pioneering work we have featured in the past, we catch up with the researchers to see how far they have come since they appeared in the magazine. My name is Chris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Diver. Hello. In the studio with us today are Dr. Tracy Camilleri and Rosanne Zarafa. Okay, so I'm Dr. Tracy Camilleri. I'm the coordinator of the project called BrainApp, which stands for Brain Controlled Applications. So basically, we are trying to develop um, applications which can be controlled using the brain, signals only. That is, if someone has mobility impairments or is completely logged in and cannot use standard interfaces such as keyboards or mice, he can still communicate with a computer using the brain signals directly. Brain signals are recorded non-invasively, so it sounds a little bit when you say about brain-computer interfacing, but brain signals are recorded non-invasively by placing electrodes on the human scalp. The subject is presented by a number of flickering icons, which we call stimuli on a computer screen. These icons are flickering at different frequencies, and there's this phenomenon that when you look at something flickering at a particular speed, your brain signals will be as fast as the mulus you're actually looking at. So by processing these brain signals, we can identify which icon you want it to press, and the system will automatically do it for you. So with each icon, there'll be some function, and that function would be executed. In this project, we're focusing on um, having a motorized bad application so we are replacing the remote control with brain signals directly communicated through the system we're developing and as we know you have a lot of experience with uh, uh, human machine interfaces and uh, you have and your team has developed uh, various uh, devices to monitor the way users select music uh, for example for another project and you have uh, also looked into arm kinetics, am I right? Yes, basically we work, we've got a lot of experience with brain signal analysis, but we also work with other biosignals. So rather than using brain signals, we, for example, can use eye movements or muscle movements to control either computer applications or other external devices, such as, for example, controlling a robotic arm through muscle activity. Um, Rosanne had developed in her embassy. Rosanne is a, a research support officer on the project, and maybe she can talk about a music player she had developed herself. Yes. And that was a master's project. I had developed, uh, it's the same concept, basically having a music player application, but instead of the typical icons we press, for example, on a mobile phone, these are flickering and these are evoke this pattern which we um, see from the brain and that is used to control the application. So the same concept can be used and now we're implementing it on a bed. Obviously, we're trying also to improve the algorithms to make the system faster, use less training and more convenient and practical for a user to just put a headset on and just use the system. Would you say it is uh, the closest uh, of uh, all your projects to commercial application? Yes, we started on on this project because there's a lot of drive on the headsets themselves. So we don't actually develop the electronics, the hardware itself. So we buy that off the shelf. Um, but when it comes to the software, it's, the software you don't find um, that commercially available. So the idea behind this project was to find an application which warrants um, such uh, the integration with such a software, which people people can actually use. It doesn't mean that only individuals who are completely logged in, but even for example the elderly who spend a lot of time on a motorized bed, they can control this instead of a standard remote 
remote control. We've partnered with an industrial partner. At the moment, we've got 8.8 um, on the project who will be developing the platform, the software platform. So we develop the algorithms and they port it on a platform so that we can eventually commercialize it. So let's hear all about it from the June 2018 issue of the Think magazine. Brain control. The power to control objects with your mind was once a dream held by science fiction fans worldwide. But is this impossible feat now becoming possible? Dr. Tracy Camilleri tells Becky Catherine Jones how a team at the University of Malta is using technology to harness this ability to help people with mobility problems. The Brain App Team. Imagine having the power to control devices around you without moving a muscle. A quick glance at a control panel and you could change the channel on the TV. Play your favorite song on YouTube, turn on a light, or get your coffee machine to prepare the perfect brew. But automation can go far beyond these menial tasks. Coordinator of the Brain App Project, Dr. Tracy Camilleri, together with her colleagues, Professor Kenneth Camilleri, Dr. Owen Falson, and engineer Roseanne Zurafa have been working steadily over the last 14 years to make it possible for movement-impaired individuals to control computers or machines using their brain signals. The team combined their backgrounds in signal processing, biomedical cybernetics, and programming to produce a system that can monitor brain activity, recognize patterns in this activation, and then translate this to control an external appliance using nothing but brain power. But how does it work? To change the station on your TV with your mind, communication needs to be established between the brain and the TV. Brain-computer interfaces can make this link happen. Brain cells use small electrical pulses called action potentials to pass messages from one cell to another. Their firing rate depends on the stimulus. If you focus on a flashing light, the neurons' action potentials will follow the same frequency. A brain-computer interface decodes the brain's patterns generated in response to these stimuli and determines what the user intends to do. Once deciphered, the system sends a message to the gadget to carry out the desired task. If the brain activity of a subject is high enough at specific frequencies, then the system will trigger a signal, says Tracy Camilleri. This also means that the system must be able to distinguish between intended commands and the idle state. A robust system can handle the time when the user is not using it. If it handles the idle state well, then the chances of a system being triggered accidentally is reduced considerably, she continues. For this to work, the user must wear a headset with electrodes touching their head. These electrodes record the brain signals picked up from neurons just below the scalp, a technique known as electroencephalography, or EEG. In medical research, it is widely used to monitor sleep and diagnose epilepsy, amongst other things. EEGs allow us to record the brain signals at good resolution, while being non-invasive, Tracy Camilleri states. By using EEGs rather than the eyes to control a device, the system becomes even more accessible to people with limited eye movement and is less likely to be distracted by changes in light, shadow, or nudges to the head. This system was first implemented in Malta with Walnut, a brain-controlled music-playing app. Whilst wearing the headset, users could focus their attention on a one of a set of flashing squares on the app and choose a song from a list, change the volume, pause, or skip to the next song. Although currently only tested in a lab setting, the team were confident that the system was solid. Responses of the brain to visual stimuli come naturally to all subjects, and the brain-computer interface can be tailored for the subject, using it to ensure a good performance, says Camilleri of the trial system. While the prospects of changing your music without using your hands may be really exciting to many, the team have even more ambitious projects in mind. Similar programs and brain-computer interfaces could be used to empower those with limited mobility, 
One focus of the team at the University of Malta is to expand this technology and apply it to a motorised bed. This will enable people with limited mobility to control the various bed functions on their own and live a more independent life. This is the main goal of the Brain App project. The goal has attracted the support of many. So far, the project has received a three-year funding package from the Malta Council for Science and Technology and has established a partnership with IDOX Health, formerly known as 6PM Group, to develop a platform for brain-controlled applications. They also have support from Karen Grek Hospital and FITA, who are giving their input on what features patients would need to have in their motorised beds. It is important for us to make sure that the system we develop is suitable for its intended users, highlights Tracy Camilleri. The choice of EEG headset is a critical issue for brain-computer interface applications. Traditionally, EEGs use gel to improve electroconductivity to the electrodes, but this is messy and difficult to apply. Replacing these with dry sensors is far more practical and makes everyday use a possibility. Such headsets have also plummeted in price, now available for a mere $250, meaning that more people can buy and use them. The downside is these cheaper headsets lack electrode coverage and sensitivity, but the field is at least heading in the right direction. Once good quality, cheap devices reach users, the marketplace could explode. Challenges come with the territory. Most brain-computer interfaces have been tested within a lab setting, a controlled environment with minimal distractions. The real world could be problematic. Recognition in brain-computer interface systems depend on wearers focusing on one spot. As a result, the team is going a step further, investigating these nuisance signals such as audio, visual distractors, or movements, and determining how they affect the brain signals. All this will help them answer the question of what signal processing techniques need to be used to make sure that the system is reliable in a practical scenario. The concept of the work and prototype seen in Walnut is amazing, but even more exciting is the technology's potential. With continued research and development, the application really is limitless. Keep your eyes focused on this group as they use the power of their brains to help ours slide into a hands-free technological age. So we're back with Tracy and Roseanne, and we're going to talk about a bit more about the technical side of how uh, the brain app works. So could you tell me how important it is to like, train your brain to keep... We know that brains are kind of plastic and not everyone's brain works the same. So if I put on a helmet that Diver programmed, it's probably not going to work as well as probably should have done, really. So could you talk a little bit more about how that sort of aspect of the research kind of continues the development of? Yes, as you well said, um, our brains change drastically. So uh, when it comes to using a brain-computer interface, um, you cannot actually use what you've trained today, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even if it's on the same subject, let alone you said you're you're using what Diva trains here. And we actually through the project and um, we've published an article, a journal article, which we've actually called To Train or Not to Train. That is the question. <laughs> uh, we wanted to see, there are various algorithms that try to detect these brain patterns. Um, some of them require extensive amount of training, others require less training, and some of them none at all. And from the literature review and research that we've done, we found that algorithms which use training data from a particular subject tend to perform better. When I, what I mean by perform better is that we identify the subject's intent more frequently than if we don't have any particular training. What does this training look like? Is it like a brain training app, like you get on your mobile phone to like in, like improve your like memory or that sort of thing? Or is it very specific, like dragging, like mentally dragging like 
accursed over a box or something like that. Well, actually, as Tracy was saying, we are looking at patterns when we see something flickering at a particular frequency. So basically, during the training, we record someone looking at this frequency and we observe the signal and the signal of that particular subject. Then we extract a pattern out of it. Mm -hmm. So it's also various um, the position of the, the electrodes where we extract the signal from the brain apart from the pattern itself. Ah, so it's because I was going to ask how many different frequencies you could sort of train your brain to sort of recognize because obviously you can't have them too close together or else they might just start triggering each other. Actually, but if you, could you also, can. Oh. Actually, you can. There are applications which have 40 icons on a computer screen flickering simultaneously with 0.2 hertz difference from one icon to the other. So the algorithms are... So, so your brain can pick up all these different signals coming at one point. That's yes. amazing. And it's an automatic process. So once you're looking at a flickering stimulus, the brain patterns will automatically be generated with a speed which are as fast in terms of frequency as the stimulus you're actually looking at. Um, in our case, we're limited to a bad application and the number of functions on a standard remote control are eight. So at this moment, we're, wa we're working with eight. But through training, we also try to identify which frequencies the subject responds to best okay. so that we can customize it to a particular individual. And we're also trying to see, because the most disadvantageous point here is having to wear a headset. Yes. So that is the, the drawback of the system, basically. So we're trying to see whether we can work with headsets that are sleek and require the minimum amount of electrodes mm -hmm. so that it's easy to wear and it doesn't look bulky on the head and individuals would feel comfortable wearing them. Yeah, I was about to ask that uh, are how comfortable the patients are. As far as we know, you have partnered with the hospital in developing it, wearing a headset all the time when they maybe want to move the beds twice in a day oh. um, the bed application is just one application so w within the tablet that they would have in front of them they can eventually also use it for example to call an nurse in case of an emergency or to control equipment in the room for example switching on or off an air condition or changing the channels of a television so this would be one application out of many now, wearing the headset for a large amount of hours would probably not be too comfortable. But there are studies with certain headsets where the subjects wore these headsets for eight hours at a stretch, and they said that the electrodes are comfortable enough. So, but this is all work in progress when it comes to hardware development. When it becomes a market, they'll they'll start developing ones that are more comfortable. Like currently, they don't really care about how uncomfortable or comfortable it is. It's just something you need for your experiments. If it became in the public domain, like people these would headsets, start developing more comfortable helmets. These headsets are now also finding themselves in the gaming industry. Oh, of course, yeah. So they're being taken up. It's like having a third hand rather than using a joystick to shoot, <laughs> etc., etc. Now you've got another control. If you have the headset on, like if you're watching like a TV screen or something like that, can that interfere with like with the flashing kind of, can it stimulate the same processes that if you're just watching a TV in your bed accidentally like starts to fall down? Or, or in other words, the, the application can switch on a TV, but can it switch it off when so many signals are coming from the TV itself? 
to trigger the same stimulus, it has to be at the same frequency. And you have to attend to it. So, as I said, on, on your screen, you would have more than one than mm -hmm. one flickering stimulus, but you're only attending to one. And that's the one that we managed to capture. So, although the other signals are in your field of view, the signals, the brain signals, are not so strong within that frequency band, so we managed to, to identify one from another. We are also um, using what is called kind of an on-off switch, because these flickering stimuli would probably be annoying if they're flashing in front of you all day. And um, so what we're using is we're trying to use a double blink to kind of switch on and off the system, especially, especially if it's a motorized bed. You're not going to change the inclination of the headrest, etc., all the time. Yeah. So when you want to use it, you double blink, you switch on the system, choose whatever function you want. As soon as you want to switch it, just double blink again and it switches off. Another point which you mentioned when you said um, are the, is the TV distracting, for example, we actually did a study on that. We had a, a movie going on and uh, we had flickering boxes on top of the movie and we actually studied that how that interfered with the pattern we were looking at in the brain. Um, the idea would be to have, for example, a game where you're playing a game and you'll have these flickering boxes um, rather than having a remote control. And in fact, we have noticed that we can still capture that particular stimulus, even though there is the movement of the background TV activity going on. And as far as I've understood from uh, reading about your technology, the main challenge is accidental triggering and uh, isolating the idle states uh, as we have uh, heard in the news even voice controlled systems like uh, that of the amazon and, and google sometimes are triggered by accident and staff of these companies have to listen to people buying drugs and and so on so how far has this moved along in your project okay so just to give you an idea what we mean by the idle state is that you're in a state where you don't want to execute some control function. Now, we've currently solved that through the on-off switch that I mentioned. So once the system is on, the system expects you to choose one icon from the set. When it comes to either state, what it means is that you have the system on, say, for example, somebody came to talk to you and all of a sudden you don't want the system to kind of choose icons at random. Now, the idle state is a particular state because if you're not choosing a function, you might doing a lot of other things. And that of a lot of other things would generate a lot of different brain signals. So it's not easy to capture. So, so far we solved it through the on-off switch, but we're trying to see through algorithmic development how we can also handle that issue in case this is the subject is in what is called an idle state. So is that sort of like your brain is always producing brainwaves and if there's a way of like recording what your normal brainwave is like, you can then kind of noise reduce that part of it out and just sort of focus on particular spikes in brainwave function. But that normal brain activity changes so much. Ah, okay. <laughs> so it's, it's you can't really get a you can't get a base just, level so exactly and just reduce it. Mm. But obviously if you're you're in a background state, you would expect no spikes in the frequencies of interest. So generally what you do is you kind of have a threshold to explain it simply. You're looking for the peaks. Exactly. Then. If there aren't any peaks beyond that threshold you kind of say that the subject is probably in an idle state, so don't execute unless he confirms otherwise. Or he triggers that particular stimulus again to confirm. Is there any issues with like normal atypical people, like people with ADHD or anything like that that might have focusing problems or is it? 
What is generally we worry about is people with epilepsy because okay, since you've got um, flickering stimuli and we're working in frequency bands generally between 6 and 15 hertz, if, if someone has epilepsy, that might trigger an epileptic seizure. So in fact, we do a screening questionnaire before someone actually uses the system to ensure that he does not have the specific type of condition. There are systems which work with higher frequencies. However, our frequencies tend to give lower performance. So then you have to find some other robust algorithms to cater for those higher frequencies. So there is an alternative. But at the moment, we're working in the 6 to 15 hertz frequency band, which is the most common in these types of applications. Does it mean that in the gaming applications, uh, this flickering can also trigger epilepsy in where people do not expect it triggers epilepsy if you suffer from epilepsy. So it's not expected to trigger seizures in, let me say, people who do not suffer from this condition. But then the future games would have to have a warning that uh, yes, you should course. not use it. If yes, mm. of course. There are different types of brain-computer interfaces. We're using this, which is called steady-state visual evoked potential, because you've got an evoked potential. There are other alternative brain-computer interface system where, for example, the subject would imagine hand or feet movement. So if you want to choose an icon which is on the left, you can imagine a left hand movement and that icon would be selected. So in that case, you will have no visual stimuli being presented. So there could be alternative brain computer interface systems for particular people. But those type of systems require more training, weeks of training. So kind of dragging like a computer cursor across the screen if for you're example. thinking of going left, perhaps. Yes, exactly. Um, but then the number of choices that you have are more limited. Before I said you can have a 40 key screen in front of you. Um, with a motor imagery brain computer interface that is more limited because you need a lot more you need processing lot, power. Uh, and you each. need a lot of uh, the brain patterns need to be distinguishable from each other. So if you're moving your hands or removing your feet or moving your tongue, those are easily distinguishable. But then you have to imagine a lot of other things. So what will be those other things? And as we know, the project is um, meant to conclude uh, next year in November. So what's left to develop and uh, uh, when can we expect to see these wonderful motorized beds? Okay, so the project is effectively in its second year. So we'll, uh, the project will end in November 2020. We had a little bit of a delay, to be honest, because the project is an MCST funded project um, between the University of Malta and an industrial partner. And we had to change the industrial partner one year through the project. So that delayed a little bit the project. But now we've got 8.8 on board together with Mr. Ivan Bartolo from Bits Consulting. They are working on the software development and we expect to have the first prototype early next year, so early in 2020. We're also trying to get a cohort of elderly people to actually try out the system so that they can give us feedback on whether they would be willing to, to use the system, what what annoys them, whether the headset is comfortable enough if worn for long hours, etc, etc. So we're trying to do that study in the meantime as well. So hopefully we'll start seeing some outcome early next year. Well, you'd have to develop a bit of trust with that, just sort of like, this is a new bed that supposedly works on your brain you just get over that scary hump of trying something new and then just sort of like no but this is something that could really change exactly. how how you live your life from a yeah. commercialization point of view we're trying to contact bed manufacturers so that this won't be a software which we sell separately but it would come automatically when someone purchases a particular bed thank you very much thank you very much that was all from rethink for today Tell us what you think about the episode by commenting on ThinkUM on Facebook. 
ThinkUni on Instagram or ThinkUni Malta on Twitter. Rethink is produced by Think Magazine in collaboration with Campus FM. In the next episodes, we will be discussing food intolerances, dementia-friendly design, blockchain of things, and pocket satellites. All these topics and more have been covered in our past issues of Think Magazine, which you can find on campus, at various festivals around Malta, or from selected distribution partners. If you are listening to us from outside of Malta, you can find Think on isuu.com forward slash thinkuni. Our theme music is by Princess Wonderful. You can find the link to her profile in the show notes. Your hosts, Daivara Pachkaita and Chris Stiles. Our sound technician is Carmo Grek. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening and bye for now. enjoyed this episode of Rethink, here's a sneak preview of what we got for you next time. On cubes and the pockets that fit them. Proposed by Professor Robert Twigg at Stanford University, cubic satellites of various standard sizes have gained incredible popularity over the years, but only four pocket cubes have made it into space thus far. Ready-made kits of SatCube nanosatellites are available to anyone over the internet, A startup in Glasgow plans to do the same with pocket cubes. However, 
a fairly deep pocket remains a prerequisite, with each kit clocking in at about €10,000, a figure that stands alone and includes none of the launch costs. Following a call issued by the new research group in 2014, Darren Kakia joined the team and is now laying the groundwork to build the University of Malta's first pocket cube satellite from scratch, with off-the-shelf components as part of his Masters in Science and Engineering. In the same way smartphones can be made at a fraction of the price they used to, why can't satellites go down the same route?